0: to Mysteries Abound. A collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing and the downright odd. In our world today, Mysteries Abound. Welcome everyone to the Mysteries Abound podcast, episode number 52. This show is entitled, Was the Uffington White Horse Really a Unicorn? But first of all, a story from the www.telegraph.co.uk website. Adolf Hitler had a son with a French teenager while serving as a soldier during the First World War according to New Evidence. And this is by Peter Allen. Jean-Marie Lorette, who died in 1985, aged 67, never met his father, but went on to fight Nazi forces during the Second World War. His extraordinary story has now been backed up by a range of compelling evidence, both in France and in Germany, which is published in the latest edition of Paris's Le Point magazine. Hitler is said to have had an affair with Mr. Lorette's mother, Charlotte Lobjouille, 16, as he took a break from the trenches in June, 1917. Although he was fighting the French near Seboncourt in the northern Picardy region, Hitler made his way to fournes in Weppe, a small town west of Lille, for regular leave. There he met Lis Lobjouille, who later told their son, One day I was cutting hay with some women when we saw a German soldier on the other side of the street. He had a sketch pad and seemed to be drawing. All the women found this interesting and curious to know what he was drawing. I was designated to approach him. The pair started a brief relationship, which resulted in the birth of Jean-Marie, who was born in March 1918, after being conceived during a tipsy evening in June 1917. Miss Lobjouy later told Jean-Marie, when your father was around, which was very rarely, he liked to take me for walks in the countryside. But these walks usually ended badly. In fact, your father, inspired by nature, launched into speeches which I did not really understand. He did not speak French, but solely ranted in German, talking to an imaginary audience. Even if I spoke German, I would not be able to follow him, as the histories of Prussia, Austria and Bavaria were not familiar to me at all. Far from it. My reaction used to anger your father so much that I did not show any reaction. Jean-Marie was like thousands of other French children with German soldier fathers, badly treated by his peers at school. He was referred to as the son of the Bosch, and often had fights as he tried to defend his father, who had by now disappeared over the border back to Germany. Miss Lobjoui, meanwhile, refused to discuss Jean-Marie's father and ended up giving her only son away for adoption in the 1930s to a family called Lorette. His real father would not recognise Jean-Marie, but continued to stay in contact with Miss Lobjouy. Incredibly, Mr Lorette went on to fight the Germans in 1939, defending the Maginot Line before it was bypassed during the Nazi invasion, which resulted in France being occupied from 1940 until 1944. Mr Lorette even joined the French resistance and was given the code name Clement. Just before her death in the early 1950s, Miss Lobjoui finally told Jean-Marie that his father was arguably the most infamous dictator in human history. Mr Lorette said, In order to not get depressed, I worked non-stop, never took a holiday and had no hobbies. For 20 years, I didn't even go to the cinema. Mr Lorette began investigating his past in great detail employing scientists to prove that he was the same blood type as Hitler and that they even had similar handwriting. Photographs of the two also reveal an astonishing resemblance. Other elements which corroborate the story are official Wehrmacht or German Army papers which show that officers brought envelopes of cash to Miss Lovejoy during the Second World War. When Miss Lobjoui died, Mr. Lorette also found paintings in her attic which were signed by Hitler, who was an accomplished artist. In Germany, meanwhile, a picture of a woman painted by Hitler looked exactly like Miss Lobjoui. Francois Guibault, Mr. Lorette's Paris lawyer, said, He first came to see me in 1979, but was a bit lost and didn't know whether he wanted to be publicly recognised as Hitler's son or to erase all that completely. He had the feelings of many illegitimate children, the desire to find a past, however heavy, but also the fear of returning to the old routine. I talked with him a lot, playing the role of psychologist rather than lawyer. Mr. Gabot said that Mr. Lorette's own children might now be in a position to claim royalties from Mein Kampf, Hitler's famous book, which has sold millions of copies around the world. Mr. Lorette wrote a book called Your father's name was Hitler in 1981 and it is now set to be republished with all the new evidence. Hitler, who was born in an Austrian village, frequently spoke of his love for France and especially Paris. In December 1940, he paid an emotional visit to the capital city where he was pictured saluting Napoleon's tomb in front of his bemused generals. More intriguingly still, Hitler transferred from Vienna part of the remains of Napoleon II, Napoleon Bonaparte's son with Marie Louise of Austria. Hitler often enthused about the greatness of Napoleon, saying that he wanted to have as big an impact on history as the Frenchman. Although he never officially had any sons or daughters of his own, Hitler often spoke of his love of children and animals. He married his mistress, Eva Braun, as the Red Army shelled his bunker in Berlin in 1945 and committed suicide shortly afterwards. As ghosts go, she was rather a cultured specimen. The pale Edwardian figure made frequent visits to the mansion home of Alan Smith, always accompanied by the music of Chopin, according to the startled souls who bore witness. From the dailymail.co.uk website, the long lost haunted painting and strange claims that the ghost of Mrs. Bell vanished after the picture was put back in its rightful place and it's by Eleanor Harding. Her interest in the house was a mystery until the discovery of a long lost painting that appeared to feature the very same person sitting at a piano. When the portrait was returned to the Heels House drawing room the sighting stopped. Mr Smith was so fascinated he decided to investigate the history of the painting and uncovered the sad story of the uninvited ghost. He identified the woman as a Mrs Bell, one of the 15 bedroom mansion's previous occupants, who had been bankrupted and forced to sell all her possessions, including her beloved portrait, shortly before her death in the early 1900s. Mr Smith said her ghost would walk along the corridors and in the bedrooms, usually at about one o'clock in the morning, He continued, she was usually wreathed in a blue haze and just drifted around. You couldn't see her legs. Sometimes she would even arrive at the bottom of my bed in the middle of the night. I thought there must be some kind of scientific explanation, but other people who visited the house were terrified, and they now believe she's been put to rest because she got her painting back. Mr Smith's family had seen the apparition many times at the house near Bideford, Devon, before Mr Smith was approached by the owner of a local junk shop, who asked him, are you the master of heels? She told him she had something that should be returned to its rightful home and showed him the picture, thought to be by Cyril Roberts, a prominent painter who was based in Paris. The face was eerily familiar to Mr Smith And he quickly realized it depicted the woman his family had been visited by and she was seated at a piano in his drawing room his research unmasked the subject as mrs bell wife of an argentine beef rancher who lived in heel house in the early 1900s from what we know about mrs bell she was a very cultured lady said mr smith it must have been sad for her to see all of her possessions sold He confirmed that after the portrait was placed in the drawing room, she never appeared again. We even tried to use a Ouija board to bring her back, but it looks as if she's gone forever, he added. The story came to light when Mr Smith Seventy took the picture to be appraised on the Antiques Roadshow. In the Appalachian Mountains rests a medical oddity so unusual that it first seems to be a massive hoax. Dating back to the early 1800s, an isolated family in eastern Kentucky, who can trace their roots back to a French orphan, started producing children who were blue. As a result of a coincidental meeting of recessive genes, intermarriage and interbreeding, members of the Fugate family were born with a rare condition that made them visibly discoloured. From the dailymail.co.uk website Talk about blue in the face. The extraordinary story of Appalachia's blue family whose bodies were discoloured after generations of inbreeding. The mystery behind the astonishing picture of the Fewgates, which has been baffling people for years, appears to have been finally solved. It began when Martin Fugate, a French orphan, settled on the banks of eastern Kentucky's Troublesome Creek to claim a land grant in the early 19th century. He married a red-haired American named Elizabeth Smith who had a very pale complexion and their union formed a genetic mutation that resulted in their descendants being born with blue skin. Looking at the portrait, they appear to have been either photoshopped or made up to mimic characters from the children's cartoon, The Smurfs. But science proves that the condition is in fact real. Called methemoglobinemia, commonly known as MET-H, the condition reduces the individual's ability to carry oxygen in their blood. As a result, their blood is darker than the color typically found running through people's veins. Because the Fugate family lived in such an isolated part of Kentucky, They intermarried with a neighbouring family for generations, which led to a relatively pure gene pool, where the Met H gene appeared much more frequently. The family was first discovered in 1958, when one of the Blue Men, Luke Combs, who was a descendant of another branch of the Fugate family, took his white wife to the University of Kentucky Hospital and doctors paid more attention to him than his wife. Luke was just as blue as Lake Louise on a cool summer day," Dr. Charles H. Balin II told the Tri-City Herald in 1974. Aside from the stark discoloration of the carrier's skin, there are no serious problems associated with the disease. In 1980, a counter-intuitive solution was discovered, where the blue person drinks a chemical-filled solution that is itself blue. This then turns the carrier's blood into a normal red hue which is then reflected in a change in skin tone. Because of the dispersion of fluids, the solution only lasts for about a day, so the carrier would have to drink a serving every day. As Eastern Kentucky has become vastly more populated than the early 19th century, and as more genes are married into the Fugate family tree, there were far fewer children born with the condition. That said, the recessive MET H gene lingers to this day, but it is statistically insignificant now. They weren't sick, it was just the way they look, said Nurse Ruth Pendergrass in the Tri City Herald article. They're normal people, they're good people. And if you'd like to see the painting showing the people with their blue faces, and it's quite okay, it's a little bit hazy, but you can see the blue. Visit the show notes at www.origins.info. Click on the Mysteries Abound show notes link and then on the link to episode 52 and then on the link to this article. from the www.yellowstonegate.com website. No explanation for mysterious lake music reported by many Yellowstone visitors. And this is by Ruffin Provost. Yellowstone Lake and the rugged backcountry that surrounds it is a place where millions go seeking solitude and silence. Yet in a well-documented but rarely discussed phenomenon Some visitors to the lake area have experienced remarkable celestial sounds of unknown and unexplained origin. They resemble the ringing of telegraph wires or the humming of a swarm of bees beginning softly in the distance, growing rapidly plainer until directly overhead, and then fading as rapidly in the opposite direction, wrote Hiram M. Chittenden in 1895 in his book The Yellowstone National Park. Chittenden's description is one of several in the historical record, as well as many more from popular anecdotal accounts of strange sounds or lake music coming from the skies around Yellowstone Lake and Shoshone Lake. Chittenden was an accomplished engineer with rigorous scientific discipline who built roads and bridges in the park, as well as locks in Seattle's Lake Washington Ship Canal. He was not given to idle speculation or unsubstantiated gossip, about seemingly magical events. But he is hardly the only or even the first prominent Yellowstone visitor to write about the strange and unexplained lake sounds. Edwin Linton, a professor of biology at Washington and Jefferson College and a specialist in marine parasites who was working in Yellowstone in the summer of 1890 as part of a project for the US Fish Commission, Linton, his colleagues and his guides heard the mysterious sounds more than once during that trip and he drew from his own diary entries when he wrote an account of the odd experience for the November 3, 1893 edition of the prestigious journal Science. On the following morning we heard the sound very plainly, Linton wrote. It appeared to begin directly overhead and to pass off across the sky growing fainter and fainter towards the southeast. It appeared to be a rather indefinite reverberating sound characterized by a slight metallic resonance. Linton and others have described the sounds as harp-like or similar to human voices or the sound of metal cables crashing against each other but no satisfactory explanation has yet been offered for their origin. Lee Whittlesey, historian at Yellowstone Park and a long-time resident of the region, said that the Yellowstone lake sounds aren't often discussed by park insiders. You have to have a real interest in Yellowstone history to even be familiar with it, said Whittlesey, who has written several books and articles about Yellowstone history. There are a number of pieces written about it, but it's often deeply buried in the literature, he said. Despite how far-fetched the phenomenon sounds, Whittlesey said he's confident the sounds have existed and the historical accounts about them are credible. It has been reported by too many people for it to be any kind of Bigfoot thing or something like that, he said. Respected scientists and prominent park figures have reported hearing the sounds and accounts have appeared in books, journals and newspapers, Whittlesey said. Although the last new written report may have been as far back as the 1930s. Typically, accounts of the sounds state that they take place at or near Yellowstone Lake or Shoshone Lake on a clear day when there is little or no wind and the waters are still, usually in the morning. Geologist Frank H. Bradley explored and documented Yellowstone's natural wonders as a member of the Hayden Expeditions, and wrote in 1873 about hearing odd sounds along the shore of Yellowstone Lake. While getting breakfast, we heard every few moments a curious sound between a whistle and a hoarse whine, whose locality and character we could not determine at first, though we were inclined to refer to it as waterfowl on the other side of the lake, Bradley wrote in his account of the geologic survey of the area. I have listened for it because I found it so interesting, said Whittlesey, who has lived and worked around Yellowstone for more than 35 years. I first learned of it in the early 1970s, and over the years kept running into references to it here and there, he said. So I listened for it at any time I was camped in the backcountry, anywhere near Yellowstone Lake or Shoshone Lake, and I have never heard it. Terry Dolanay, tour guide based in Cody, Wyoming said he has not only never heard of the sounds but was not familiar with the details of the historical accounts of them. There have been various explanations proposed for the sounds ranging from fanciful speculation to educated guesses, often centred around the park's unique geology. An August 1930 article in Popular Science magazine cited, mild earthquakes their sounds possibly magnified in underground caverns like sound boxes, as one potential explanation. The article also referenced a theory put forward by F.C. Marvin, chief of the US Weather Bureau, who based his ideas on observations by Glenn Jefferson, a Yellowstone meteorologist. Marvin noted that temperature inversions are not uncommon above Yellowstone Lake, where warmer air above the lake sits atop cooler air near the water's surface. He posited that such inversions may alter the natural way that the air conducts sound. The article states, it might produce sound mirages in which distant noises of geysers, birds or steamboats might appear to come from near at hand. Other theories are referenced dismissively by Stephen Forbes of the Illinois State Natural History Survey who wrote about hearing the lake sounds while on the same expedition as Linton. No scientific explanation of this really bewitching phenomenon has ever been published, although it has been several times referred to by travellers who have ventured various crude guesses at its cause varying from that commonest catch-all of the ignorant, electricity To the whistling of the wings of ducks and the noise of the steamboat geyser," Forbes wrote. It seems to me to belong to the class of aerial echoes, but even on that supposition I cannot account for the origin of the sound. If the sounds are related to the park's geology, they come and go along with thermal features like geysers or hot springs, which wax and wane over years or even decades depending on a complex set of natural factors. It's possible that some people in recent years have heard the sound but kept mum about it for fear of sounding foolish or being ridiculed, Whittlesey said. But for whatever reason the lake sounds are not a topic most guides discuss with visitors. I was a tour guide and a ranger naturalist and I don't remember ever using it in a program, Whittlesey said. It's just not something that is well-known among Yellowstone interpreters or Yellowstone tour guides. Despite the lack of any recently documented lake sounds and the lack of a solid explanation for them, Whittlesey is sure the sounds existed as described. I feel quite certain these people all heard what they wrote about, he said. In an ancient tomb located below a modern condominium in Jerusalem, archaeologists have found ossuaries, bone boxes for the dead, bearing engravings that could represent the earliest archaeological evidence of Christians ever found. From the LiveScience.com website, Possible Earliest Evidence of Christianity Resurrected from Ancient Tomb, and it's written by Wim Parry. The tomb has been dated to before A.D. 70, so if its engravings are, indeed, early Christian, they were most likely made by some of Jesus' earliest followers, according to excavators. One of the limestone ossuaries bears an inscription in Greek that includes a reference to Divine Jehovah raising someone up. A second ossuary has an image that appears to be a large fish with a stick figure in its mouth. The excavators believe the image represents the story of Jonah, the Biblical prophet who was swallowed by a fish or whale and then released. Together, both the inscription and the image of the fish represent the Christian belief in resurrection from death. While images of the Jonah story became common on more recent Christian tombs, they do not appear in first century art and iconographic images like this on ossuaries are extremely rare. If anyone had claimed to find either a statement about resurrection or a Jonah image in a Jewish tomb of this period, I would have said, impossible, until now. James D. Tabor, Professor and Chairman of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte and one of the excavators, said in a news release issued by the University. The excavators acknowledge the discovery and their interpretation are likely to be controversial. This tomb was originally uncovered in 1981, but the original excavators were forced to leave by Orthodox Jewish groups who opposed the excavation of Jewish tombs. The tomb was then resealed and buried beneath the condominium complex in the neighbourhood of East Telpiot. Almost two decades later, Tabor and colleagues got a license to go back into the tomb. However, because of the condos on top and the threat of protests from Orthodox Jewish groups, they took an unconventional route into the tomb. They inserted a robotic arm, developed for this project, carrying high-definition cameras through holes drilled in the basement floor of the building. The cameras photographed the ossuaries inside from all sides. This tomb is located adjacent to another one, uncovered in 1980, that contained ossuaries with names some have associated with Jesus and his family. That tomb was thoroughly excavated at the time. An article by Tabor describing the discovery is scheduled for publication online at The Bible and Interpretation, today February 28th. From the www.yourghoststories.com website. A story by Serpent. The Yellow Eyes. I am glad that I'm finally writing this down. I should have many years ago. I can't remember how old I was, but I know that I was in the second grade. I recall drawing pictures of what I had seen in class the next day. This would have been about 20 years ago now. I was living with my family in an old farmhouse on the outskirts of Freeport, Maine. I was laying in my bed trying to fall to sleep. The door to my room was open and so was the door to my little brother's room. The placement of the bed and design of the house was such that from my bed I could see into part of my brother's room. I rolled onto my side and looked in that direction and what I saw would forever be known to my family and I as the yellow eyes. As a child I immediately classified them as eyes, although they did not look like the eyes of a person or any animal that I could bring to mind. They seemed larger than a human's eyes and a little farther apart. They did not possess a pupil or iris that I could see. They were just solid yellow and were glowing. The eyes were luminescent but did not seem to cast light onto anything around them. I suppose the reason I identified them as eyes was because they moved together in the same plane and appeared to be five to six feet off the floor. The yellow eyes had appeared in front of my brother's closet which was thankfully about as far as possible from where he lay sleeping. But they didn't seem interested in him anyway. They were looking right at me. The eyes moved a few feet in my direction, bobbing just slightly, and then blinked out. A moment later they reappeared, a few feet closer still, right on the threshold of the other bedroom. I lost it, certain that whatever it was, it was going to get me. I threw my blanket over my head, having no desire to see what was about to happen. And I tried to scream to my father for help. I tried and tried but was not successful. I was so terrified the sound would not come, just my breath. After a time I must have exhausted myself, because I did sleep that night. When I woke up I was fine and the sunlight spilling into the kitchen that morning never looked so inviting. My brother had seen nothing, and my parents were pretty dismissive about the whole incident. I can't blame them. Years later my father offered the explanation that it was only car lights, and still insists that this was the case. But this happened on the side of the house that faces the woods, not the road, and cars rarely went down that road in those days because half of it was dirt and poorly maintained. Even if the lights from a car could somehow ricochet a considerable distance from the road to something mysteriously reflective in the forest through the window and into the room, it doesn't explain how the light could be projected three-dimensionally out from the wall. Not to mention no one in the house ever saw anything like that before or since in the more than 30 years that my family has lived there. Seeing the yellow eyes was probably the scariest thing that any of us ever experienced in that house because it wasn't the only strange event. Most of it was easy to attribute to the place just being old, however. Light bulbs constantly blowing, drafts, creaking, scratching, terrible smells. Others could certainly have been our minds playing tricks on us, seeing people in the corner of our eyes who weren't there. My father said that my mother claimed to have heard children's voices in the house before any of us kids were born. But she says now that she doesn't remember that. One time one of my brothers woke up choking himself. That definitely scared him. But people can do weird things in their sleep. When my sister was a teenager and I was off at school, she had heard something in her closet. Something big, she thought, really going berserk. I suppose that it's possible a squirrel or something had gotten in there. Anything could sound big if it was really trying to make a racket. The only other incident that really got my heart beating was when I was a teenager watching television. There was this little perpetual motion trinket on top of the television. It wasn't moving or anything, just sitting there. And then all of a sudden the thing went flying and almost hit me in the shoulder. I calmly got up turned off the TV, left the room, and told myself over and over again that the vibration from sound had somehow flung the toy at me. It's the yellow eyes though that really drive me nuts. Not only because they scared me so terribly, but because now I want so badly to be able to explain what I saw. Despite the occasional weirdness, we never really thought of our house as a haunting, It was always our home. In some ways, it still feels more like home than the house I share with my husband. It was an absolutely wonderful place to grow up. In many ways, I love that place. But to me, it has always felt more alive than other houses I've stayed in. And like something is always there, even when you're alone. My mother still lives there though, alone. And I don't think she ever gets scared or believes anything is there. I never did any real research on the place but the farmhouse we lived in is well over a hundred years old. The property much older. When I was very young there was an L attached to the house and two barns. My parents had to tear down the L and the older barn because they were in such disrepair. But those were actually the original structures. The L once a home. My brother's room where I saw the eyes is kind of unique. In it is the trapdoor to the attic, where I don't think any of us have ever gone, and another small door in the wall, also not sure if we ever opened it. That must be either a crawl space or a passage that had once led into the L. The closet door also caused us some fear as children. It has a big oblong knot in the wood, nearly spanning the height of the door, and atop this knot two odd points, like horns, making the door look a bit like it has a shadowy devil in it. But it is just a knot. The remaining barn also has some interesting patterns in the wood. A good portion of the wood inside is superficially burnt. A neighbour once told us that a previous owner tried to burn it down for the insurance money. Near the bottom of a burned beam, down just below a charcoal portion of it, is a child's black handprint. It almost looks as though it were burned into the wood, but more likely it is black paint or oil. Most everything I can explain away, but the yellow eyes make me a believer. I have been afraid that the yellow eyes would come back my entire life. I literally needed a nightlight until I left for college, and when I went on breaks I would have had to leave the television on to fall to sleep. Even when I visit now with my husband, I still get a little freaked out at night. When I was a kid, I didn't even feel safe at night in other houses. I thought they might be able to follow me. Sometimes I still think I might see them again, like something was started that hasn't finished. I have always had a very active imagination, and children can be very egocentric. But at the time, I had the feeling that the yellow eyes were there for me And the feeling has somewhat persisted it is difficult for me to express in a way that makes sense but i do feel like the incident was significant for lack of a better word and not incidental should i still be thinking about it 20 years later i would love to hear what people think about this one and if anyone has had a similar experience post.com website, an article by Tom Breen. Brown mountain lights, mysterious orbs in North Carolina are a decades old mystery. Two orange orbs just about 10 feet off the ground floated past Steve Woody and his father as they hunted deer more than 50 years ago. The mysterious lights pass to them, then drop down the side of a gorge in the Blue Ridge foothills. For at least a century, the brown mountain lights have confounded residents and tourists in a rugged patch of Burke County, bobbing and weaving near a modest peak. Are they reflections from automobile headlights? Brush fires? A paranormal phenomenon? Or something natural, not yet explained by science? I didn't feel anything spooky or look around for Martians or anything like that, Woody said. It was just a unique situation. It's just as vivid now as when I was 12 years old. Whatever the explanation, tourism officials are hoping all those decades of unanswered questions add up to a boost in visitors making their way to scenic outlooks around Linville Gorge with the goal of spotting something mysterious. Unexplained mysteries like the Brown Mountain Lights have been the subject of cable TV documentaries and have fueled vast online communities of amateur investigators. Ed Phillips, Burke County's tourism director, is hoping to capitalize on that. Earlier this month, a sellout crowd of 120 paid $20 a head to attend a symposium on the lights at Morganton City Hall. And there was a crowd outside the door hoping to get in at the last minute. It's a good problem to have, Philip said. I could have sold 500 tickets. Interest in the lights has waxed and waned since the first known printed reference to the phenomenon appeared in the Charlotte Observer in 1913. John Harden, a Rayleigh-based radio personality, devoted an episode of his 1940s series Tales of Tahilia to the Lights, saying they not only have attracted the attention of the people of this state, but have aroused the curiosity of a nation as well. There was also a folk song, recorded by the Kingston Trio and others, that posited the Lights came from a slave wandering the hills with a lantern in search of his master. The profile of the lights has dimmed in recent years, although the number of reports doesn't appear to be falling off. Making the area a destination for fans of the unexplained and anomalous helps give Burke County an edge, Phillips said. When you look at everything, you look at what people are really interested in. And the Brown Mountain Lights was something I really wanted to bring back to people's attention, he said. There are plans for another symposium and a contest with a cash prize for the best photo or video of the lights. There are even t-shirts and refrigerator magnets for sale in the area now. Also in the works is a regular event tentatively called the Brown Mountain Paranormal Expedition where people will pay to hear a presentation on the lights at a dinner, then travel by bus to overlook sites where the lights have been reported. The events will be guided by Joshua P. Warren, an Asheville native and paranormal investigator, who plans to allow attendees to use equipment like night vision goggles in hopes of spotting the lights. The folks who attend will have a true first-hand experience of what it's like to be out there trying to judge what's happening with this mountain," Brown said. The Brown Mountain Lights have drawn serious scientific interest since the 1920s when the US Geological Survey issued a report concluding the lights were reflections from automobiles, trains and brush fires. Daniel Caton, a professor in the Physics and Astronomy Department at Appalachian State University, thinks that's part of the explanation for what people have reported seeing over the years, but Caton thinks there's more to the lights, at least in some cases. Caton said about seven years ago he was ready to give up studying the lights when he began hearing from people who said they saw them from mere feet away, not miles across the Linville Gorge. Those accounts sounded to Caton a lot like first-hand reports of ball lightning, a little understood but naturally occurring phenomenon involving luminous spheres, often said to move or bounce about in the air. Caton hopes to eventually set up cameras at viewing sites that will feed to his website, allowing anyone to watch for the lights at any time. While he's sceptical, guessing that 95% of reports of the lights are something like airplane lights, Caton still thinks there are eyewitness reports worth checking. The cool thing is, if ball lightning is preferentially made by nature in the Linville Gorge, at least we have a place to look for the conditions that might create it, he said. Otherwise it's hopeless to try and study ball lightning because it's just randomly made and you don't know where to look for it. At this point in the podcast, I'd just like to say thank you to all of those who have provided feedback for the show, whether it be online, somewhere like iTunes, or via email. And remember, feedback is greatly appreciated because it helps me in a little way to get to know who are the listeners to the show. And also a thank you to these four people who have donated to the podcast to help with its upkeep in the last month. Bjorn Thor Bjornson, Linda Parcell, Rainer in writer and Kevin Christian. Thank you, those people, for making a donation to the podcast. Your help and support is much appreciated. And remember, if you'd like to help the podcast, there are a number of ways of doing it. One is a straight donation of any amount. And if you make a donation to the podcast, which is just a one-off thing, I also supply you with the links to the extended version of Origins and Mysteries Abound. If you wish, you can buy prints, greeting cards, stuff like that, from the Fine Arts America website. Or now I've introduced something new where I've created a website that allows you to purchase handmade greeting cards that I make myself and then ship to you wherever you live. If you'd like to visit any of those websites, whether it be the Fine Arts America or my website with the handmade greeting cards, they're at the show notes at www.origins.info. an historical campaign group has launched a £50,000 bid to have the world-famous Uffington white horse made into a unicorn. The plan by Save the Unicorn at Uffington has more than 1,000 members and is being led by Bronze Age enthusiasts. They claim the 3,000-year-old horse made from crushed white chalk in Uffington, Oxfordshire, was originally meant to be a depiction of the mythical horned beast. From the www.telegraph.co.uk website Was the Huffington white horse really a unicorn? The amateur historians have now received financial backing from well-wishers, including a £50,000 anonymous donation towards adding a 75 foot long horn to the horse. The Uthington White Horse, which measures 374 feet, is owned and managed by the National Trust, who have now received a proposal about the horn from the campaigners. Leading the group is children's author Paula Broderick, who claims to have uncovered the truth behind the giant carving's identity. Paula, best known for her children's fantasy series, the Toby and Socks trilogy, lives in Somerset, almost 100 miles from the monument. She said... The Uffington White Horse has been a great British landmark for centuries. However, its true form has always been shrouded in mystery. You only have to look at its head to see that it is not strictly a horse. We believe that the Uffington carving is actually one of a unicorn, a mythical creature known to have fascinated our ancient cultures and folklore. Situated on the upper slopes of White Horse Hill in the parish of Uffington, The 374 foot long carving, formed from deep trenches filled with crushed white chalk has been shown to date back to between 1400 and 600 BC. But its strange design, which varies significantly from other white horses in Britain, has sparked fierce debate amongst experts, including the National Trust, about whether it was intended to represent a horse or some other animal. It has been referred to as a horse since the 11th century, primarily because ancient scripts from nearby Abingdon Abbey refer to Mont Albi-Equi at Uffington or the White Horse Hill. According to Paula, the figure is most likely a unicorn, a mythical beast resembling a white horse with a large horn protecting from its forehead. Its original horn, she argues, would have been removed by overzealous Christian scholars In the 13th or 14th centuries. She said, while researching material for my new book, The Rowan Tree, I discovered the amazing story of Dragon Hill, which is next to the Uffington Horse and is said to be the spot where St George slew the dragon. The whole area is wrapped in legend and mystery and there is little doubt in my mind that the church and its scholars would have done everything possible to prevent the continuing rise of regional folklore. It's plausible that they would have removed the horn in secret. Noah never led a unicorn into the ark after all. Paul added that work on the site will continue the moment they receive the backing of the National Trust. But Richard Henderson, National Trust General Manager for Oxfordshire said, there are so many mysteries and legends surrounding the white horse at Uffington, but we have no reason to believe that it was ever intended to represent a unicorn so we would have no intention of carrying out any work to change it. This isn't the first time that the Uffington horse has been at the center of an identity battle. In 2010 retired vet Olaf Svobrik claimed that anatomically speaking the ancient carving was more akin to a dog. In August 2002 the figure was defaced with the addition of a rider and three dogs by members of the Real Countryside Alliance The act was denounced by the Countryside Alliance. And now a couple of stories from the LiveScience.com website. The first is by Natalie Walchover. A Mayan light beam photo. Message from the gods. Or iPhone glitch. When Hector Szilazar visited the ancient Mayan city of Chichen Itza with his wife and kids in 2009, he snapped three iPhone photos of El Castillo, a pyramid that once served as a sacred temple to the Mayan god Kalkalkan. A thunderstorm was brewing near the temple, and Sillazar was trying to capture lightning crackling dramatically over the ruins. In the first two images, dark clouds loom above the pyramid, but nothing is amiss. However, in the third photo, a powerful beam of light appears to shoot up from the pyramid towards the heavens, and a thunderbolt flashes in the background. Sillazar, who recently shared his photographs with occult investigators, told Earthfiles.com That he and his family didn't see the beam of light in person, it only appeared on the camera. It was amazing, he said. He showed the iPhone photo to his fellow tourists. No one, not even the tour guide, had ever seen anything like it. The photo has surfaced on several Mayan doomsday discussion forums, but was the light beam a sign from the gods? A warning about December 21, 2012? The date that marks the end of the Mayan calendar cycle? and when some people fear the end of the world? Or is it simply the result of an iPhone glitch? According to Jonathan Hill, a research technician and mission planner at the Mars Space Flight Facility at Arizona State University, which operates many of the cameras used during NASA's Mars missions, it's almost definitely the latter. He works with images of the Martian surface taken by rovers and satellites as well as data from Earth-orbiting NASA instruments, and is fully versed in the wide range of potential image artefacts and equipment errors. He says the light beam in the Mayan temple photo is a classic case of such an artefact, a distortion in an image that arises from the way cameras bounce around incoming light. It is no mere coincidence, Hill said, that of the three images, the light beam only occurs in the image with a lightning bolt in the background. The intensity of the lightning flash likely caused the camera's CCD sensor to behave in an unusual way, either causing an entire column of pixels to offset their values or causing an internal reflection off the camera lens that was recorded by the sensor. In either case, extra brightness would have been added to the pixels in that column in addition to the light hitting them directly from the scene. Evidence in favor of this explanation is the fact that the beam, when isolated in Photoshop or other image analysis software, runs perfectly vertical in the image. That's a little suspicious, since it's very unlikely that the gentleman who took this picture would have his handheld iPhone camera positioned exactly parallel to the light beam down to the pixel level, Hill told Life's Little Mysteries. It's more likely that the light beam corresponds to a set of columns of pixels in the camera sensor that are electronically connected to each other, but not to other columns in the sensor, and that this set of connected pixels became oversaturated in the manner described above. That being said, Hill said, it is really an awesome image. To make up your own mind, everyone, visit the show notes at www.origins.info Click on the Mysteries Abound link and then the link to this article in episode 52 and have a look at the photo. It is quite an awesome image. And also from the livescience.com, an article by Benjamin Radford. A mysterious dog-headed pig monster terrorizes Africa. Residents in northern Namibia on the southwest coast of Africa have reported being terrorized by a bizarre dog-pig hybrid creature. The animal is said to be mostly white and unlike anything the villagers have ever seen, with a dog-like head and the broad, round, nearly hairless back and shoulders of a giant pig. The beast was spotted chasing and attacking dogs, goats and other domestic animals in this arid region not far from the Kalahari Desert. As often happens when rumours of monsters spread in rural areas around the world, some locals have taken extra safety precautions, such as travelling in groups and arming themselves with weapons. In 1995 and 1996 some Puerto Ricans armed themselves against the vampire beast El Chapacabra. Last year Malaysian residents patrolled the streets searching for the mysterious Orang Minyak or oily man, creature that had recently terrorized them. What could this monster be? One Namibian official regional councillor, Andreas Munjundi, was quoted on Informante newspapers saying, this is an alien animal that the people have not seen before. We don't have a forest here, only bushes. So this must be black magic at play. Some people in the area trace the beast to one old man, rumoured to be a warlock or witch doctor, suggesting it's his pet, or what witch hunters hundreds of years ago would have called a familiar. The assumption that the beast has magical origins is not surprising. A 2010 Gallup poll found belief in magic widespread through sub-Saharan Africa, with more than half of the respondents saying they personally believe in witchcraft and sorcery. This is not the first time that unusual animals have been spotted in rural areas of Namibia. Several of the monsters have been reported over the years, including in July 2009, when unknown creatures reportedly sucked the blood out of livestock, including nearly two dozen goats. Though no one saw the monsters, they were said to have left footprints similar to those of a dog, but much larger. Police followed the footprints that they mysteriously stopped in an open field as if the creature suddenly took flight or vanished. At that time, locals were also convinced that the strange beast was the product of black magic, going so far as to accuse an old man and his sister of conjuring the creature. It's not clear whether locals believe that the current dog-headed pig-bodied animal is the same mystery creature that terrified the region three years ago. Whether the reports are real or rumor, Hopefully belief in these creatures won't be used as an excuse for mob attacks on elderly men and women suspected of witchcraft. And to bring episode 52 of the Mysteries Abound podcast to a close, an article from the DailyMail.co.uk website. Harry Potter and the Filmmaker's Magic, an incredibly detailed model of Hogwarts Castle, used for every film in the blockbusting series, is revealed for the first time. And this article's by Anthony Bond. And if you're any sort of Harry Potter fan, This one is definitely worth a visit to the show notes because the pictures are really quite incredible and there's also a short video tour to go with it. Ever since the first Harry Potter novel was released almost 15 years ago, children and adults alike have fantasised about visiting its famous boarding school for wizards and witches. But as these incredible pictures show, they need to dream no longer. Whether you show magic ability or not, fans now have the opportunity to get as close to Hogwarts Castle as they are ever likely to get. This extraordinary model of the Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry is due to go on display for the first time. The model was built for the first film, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, and has been used for exterior shots in every film since. When all the time spent by 86 artists and crew members is added up, it took an incredible 74 years to build. Measuring 50 feet across, it has more than two and a half thousand fibre optic lights to simulate lantern torches and students passing through hallways. It even has miniature owls in the owlry and hinges on the doors. The castle, which was based on Durham Cathedral and Alnwick Castle, is due to go on display as part of the Making of Harry Potter studio tour at Leaveston Studios near Watford. BAFTA award-winning production designer Stuart Craig designed and built the castle with the rest of his team. He said, everything to the right of the viaduct is in fact Durham Cathedral but the profile has been changed so that there are tall, pointy spires, so there's plenty of theatrical exaggeration. It's pretty extravagant, I have to say. The castle will be on display as part of the Warner Brothers. Harry Potter Studio Tour in London from March 31. The tour promises for the first time the doors are going to be open for everyone at the studio where it first began. You'll have the chance to go behind the scenes and see many things the camera never showed. From breathtakingly detailed sets to stunning costumes, props and animatronics, Warner Bros Studio Tour provides a unique showcase of the extraordinary British artistry, technology and talent that went into making the most successful film series of all time. The three-hour tour will also take Harry Potter fans inside the Great Hall and Dumbledore's office. Visitors will also be able to step onto cobbles of Diagon Alley, walking past the shop fronts of Ollivander's Wand Shop, Flourish and Blots, The Weasley's Wizard Weezers, Gringotts Wizarding Bank and Ilop's Owl Emporium. Iconic props from the films including Harry's Nimbus 2000 broomstick and Hagrid's motorcycle will be on display alongside life-sized models of some of the creatures from the films. Other film sets included in the tour include the Gryffindor common room, the boys' dormitory, Hagrid's hut, potions classroom and Professor Umbridge's office at the Ministry of Magic. Now if you're like me and can't make your way to London, go to the show notes, have a look at the photos. They're really worth a look. Well, everyone, that concludes episode 52 of the Mysteries Abound podcast. Thank you to those who provided feedback or donations for the podcast. Your help is greatly appreciated. Until next time, whether it be Mysteries Abound or the Origins podcast, it's bye for now.